Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 23rd, and 2012. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. And the share code for Friday's meeting, December 21st, is 3547. Today's topic is allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Gloria, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in New York, is here this morning to talk about our twofold illness and share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us this morning. Welcome to you, Gloria. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm humbled by it. I'm not sure I'm up to it, but I'm going to give it my best shot. I've never really told my story in its entirety from the perspective of a mental obsession, but that's what it is, so I'm glad to have the opportunity. Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Gloria, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I'm going to say to you, I do believe I was born this way. I um, had my earliest recollection of chasing something was uh, a bottle of Pertussin when I was a little kid. It was very sweet. I come from a family um, of diabetics on both sides, and my father, with a medical background, uh, did not permit sweets in the house. And, and it was very rare occasions where we were allowed to have anything sweet. So uh, this um, pertussin was really very exciting for me. And they used to hide it, and I'd find it. And they got to be a game as to who could find it, who could hide it better. Um, and the second thing that happened when I was young was that I... Um, um, my mother would sprinkle wheat germ on my food, and um, I wasn't able to, uh, when she turned her back or left the kitchen, I would go ahead and put tons and tons and tons of wheat germ on my cereal. And she noticed that the wheat germ was disappearing at an alarming rate, and she took me to the doctor one of the few times that you know she ever saw something that egregious that made her take me to a doctor about it. And she said that little Gloria was eating tons of wheat germ, and she didn't know if that was good or not. And the doctor said, oh, it's wonderful. She's gotten packed full of vitamins. Let her have all the wheat germ she wants. Um, and and I also, um, at that time, did not like bread or pasta. There was two things that I really didn't enjoy and took a long time, <clears throat> a lot of effort on my parents' part to have me eat. Uh, I don't remember up until the age of 10 ever eating compulsively. I'm not sure I ever had the opportunity. Uh, but what happened when I was 10 and a half was that my father died in his sleep. My mother discovered, uh, well, my mother was in the kitchen, let's go this way, and I I came up, I woke up, and I came into the kitchen to find her in the kitchen, which was unusual because she never didn't make breakfast on Sunday. My father did. So I said, oh, you're in the kitchen. Where's Daddy? And she said, he's sleeping, and uh, he won't get up. You go get him. So I went into the bedroom and found my father had actually died, and I went and told my mom, and she said, that's not true. He'll wake up for you, and don't tell me this. So she got kind of hysterical. I ran out to tell a neighbor. The neighbor didn't believe me either, slapped me across the face. I ran to another neighbor, and he believed me and came. And what they did is eventually relatives came, and they said, well, what should we do with little Gloria? And they said, well, we'll have to get little Gloria at the house. You know, she hasn't eaten. So they took me to a restaurant. There was a restaurant in Brooklyn on Bay Parkway and uh, 86th Street, and uh, it was open all the time. It served every kind of breakfast, lunch, and dinner at any hour. And they took me there, and they said, Gloria, what would you like to eat? And I remember what I had. I had uh, chicken and uh, vegetable and potato. And afterwards, they said, what, would you like something else? And then I proceeded to have a sandwich. And they said, would you like something else? And then I proceeded to have dessert. And they said, would you like to have something else? And then I proceeded to eat some more. <laughs> and I couldn't stop eating it. And truthfully, I didn't stop eating for the next five years. That's exactly how it started. I never stopped eating. And uh, I remember uh, one example would be that I, um, I, people were coming over. My mother was making tuna fish sandwiches. She had me uh, make the, the sandwiches. I had a loaf of bread. I had the tuna. I prepared the salad. I put it on a tray. I sat down beside the tray. 
And when the people came, there was not, nothing on the tray. I had eaten everything off of that tray. That's the kind of mindless eating I had. Now you could t- put that down to craving. You can put that down to a lot of different things. But I think it was the mental obsession that, for me, um, food was the panacea for keeping me my feelings at bay. Um, cut to the chase, by the time I was 16 and graduating and going off to college, I realized since I had had a miserable high school, as you can imagine, being overweight, um, I never went to a prom. I, I, I barely got into my graduation dress. Um, it was not a happy time, and I was terrified of going away. I had always been in a private school, and they were sending me, allowing me to go to a regular junior college in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And um, I didn't think I could uh, survive the kind of uh, t- you know torture that it would be. Oh, the only girl on campus who is this heavy. So I went on an extreme diet. There was a product called Metrical. I started, it was supposed to be one meal. You substituted one meal a day. I substituted all three. By the end of the month, I was down to eating one Metrical cookie a day, playing tennis, running, and bicycling for hours. Needless to say, I was a size seven by the time I went off to Fort Lauderdale. When I got to Fort Lauderdale and my strange diet became (laughs) um, apparent to my uh, classmates, they uh, told me that, you know, you don't have to do this. You can actually eat anything you want. You just have to purge one way or another, um, either with um, uh, something that would make you uh, throw it up or uh, excrete it um, by taking X-lax. And I said... Wow, this is why people go to college, to learn these things. You know, I would never have known this. And I thought this was genius level. And so I proceeded to become, as well as a compulsive eater, I was an anorexic, a bulimic, and an exercise bulimic. And did this for quite a while. When I came back to New York and I... um, went into business. I There was a very popular diet at that time. It was called the Atkins diet, which interestingly enough, I was on for many, many years and stayed a perfect size seven. But uh, the Atkins diet doesn't have any wheat flour sugar in it. I, not something I ever really noticed until many, many years later when I came into recovery. But it did work. I did stay, um, you know, um, fat-free, so to speak, and I was uh, doing fine, but the the diet had proved to not work for my body system, and I became ill, and I was told I should not be on such a such a diet, and so I didn't. But I, I did well on diets. I yo-yoed most of my life. I yo-yoed. And, um, well, I also have body dysmorphia because, you see, I was always a size 12. I was a size 12 when I was a size 14, 16, 18, 20, 1X, 2X. I was always a size 12. That's where I saw myself. Conversely, when I was thin, I was always a size 12, even if I were a size 8 or 10 or, say, 6. So there's my mental problem. But food, from, from the obsession point of view, was always on my mind. To wit, I would choose my friends based on what kind of food they served, how much food they served, did they like to eat, did they not like to eat. I certainly wasn't going to go out with people or attend parties with people who gave you what we used to call the one lamb chop dinner as opposed to to someone who fed you the entire lamb. And this is the kind of behavior I had, not I'm not proud of, but that's the kind of things I did. Uh, I yo-yoed for many, many years, um, and at one point in 1980, I had come into Al-Anon because of some drinking in my family, and um, I was having a hard time focusing on myself, and they suggested, you know, you have a weight problem. Have you ever thought of going to OA? I had never even heard of OA, but I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. I went to OA. I attended meetings regularly in 1980, they used the big book, um, and I got a sponsor, and I became a little poster child for OA because I actually, their diet, of the Dignity of Choice diet at the time was no white flour or sugar. Um, 
and and I managed to do that. Uh, my husband uh, at the time was a diabetic, so he was ha- following a food plan, and the dignity of choice food plan on think on the orange sheet was almost identical. Uh, it had whole grain, fresh vegetables, re- re- timed meals, weighed meals, and four meals a day to keep your blood sugar level. And that worked for me because I had hypoglycemia since I was a kid. And um, I went to OA and I got abstinent. Now, here's the deal. I stayed abstinent for almost eight years. But the mental obsession never left me. And why I say that is I wasn't craving because I believe craving is once you ingest something. And I wasn't ingesting anything that would cause me to have mental obsessions. It was my mind that was out of focus. And then we go to the big book where it says we're full flight from reality and we were outright mental defectives. Well, and then it also says before that we were maladjusted to life. Well, to me, the big book wasn't written to tell me stories about other people. The big book was written to explain me to me because when I look at this book and I see what Dr. Silkworth wrote, he's he's explaining me. I wasn't even born yet, but I ate the way these people drank. And they wrote about everything about these people and they were talking about me. So when I look at the big book, it isn't so much a tutorial. It's like an autobiography. Uh, This is who I am. This is what I've experienced. And that's why this book resonates so much with me. Um, I, as I said, stayed abstinent. I always had in the back of my mind that I could eat a normal person. I always believed at some point, given enough time, my metabolism would change. This is the mental obsession part. My metabolism would change. I had learned better. I was now eating correctly. My body would, I, I did no idea about allergy of the body or obsession of the mind. I, this, but this is why, the way I did think. And so along seven or eight years into my abstinence, I don't say recovery because mentally I was still chasing food in my head. I was still walking around trying to figure out what product I could stick into my food plan that would not cause cravings but would give me that little thrill that I was looking for. Um, And and to wit, there was a product on the market, and as they said, I had in those days, uh, they called, uh, and they still do a metabolic, which is a a small meal after four hours after dinner, usually a protein and a fruit. And um, there was a product on the market that had a flavor that I really enjoyed, that I would mix with my milk and have with my fruit. But I almost alcoholically had to have it. I could not go, and I only had one can. And in those days, I wasn't um, sweetener-free. This had a sweetener in it. And I I had to have it. And that product went off the market eventually in the mid-'80s, late-'80s. And I was so desperate. This is the mental part. <laughs> I bought a case of them. I had an entire, I bought, and I don't mean six or 12. I'm talking like 144 or two or 300 cans. I mean, I had a closet filled with the stuff. I was desperate that I would not be able to have it. It was like a drug addict with a fix, only I was controlling it by only having one. That's why in AA, I think they say it's not how much you have, but you need to have it every day. And so, um, indeed, I did have it every day. Along that same time, there was um, an idea by the American um, Diabetes Association, and my husband was a diabetic, so I followed their food plan for him religiously. Uh, it said that there was, a, they used to do a, um, a what they call a, it was a, sub, um, a chart where you, you could substitute one thing for the other, but this was this and that was that. They had fats, they had protein, they had fruit, they had vegetables, they had everything listed in what you could and couldn't do. And they decided, bless their hearts, that they could actually substitute a starch and a fat and have a cookie. And well, that's all my brain had to hear. Uh, first of all, if if uh, a diabetic could have a cookie, so could I. That was my attitude. This is the mental obsession. Remember, I, I hadn't had – I was abstinent now for years. I'd done the steps. I made a bends. I, you know, I thought I was free of everything. I was just – you know, I thought I was home free here. And I had the cookie. It took me 
eight years and 80 pounds to stop eating that cookie. That's a mental obsession combined with, of course, a physical allergy. But there was nothing I could do. Now, here's the rest of the, medical, uh, of the mental obsession regarding this. I would go back on the food plan. I would stay on the food plan for a month. And now you have to realize I'm almost 200 pounds by this time. And I would be on it for a month, and I'd say, see, this food plan isn't working. I'm still 190 pounds. Because in my head, if I went back on the right food plan, I would be a size 7 all over again in a month, which is totally insane. But that's... That's the way I convinced myself. So I went on and off and on and off and year in, year out, year in, year out to the point in um, in the late 80s, um, I, I really, I was getting physically ill. First of all, I'm not built to be able to carry a lot of weight. And my feet were bothering me. My knees were bothering me. Um, I was having uh, chest pains. I had... Um, my blood sugar was running from 49 to 150. I mean, it just nothing was stable. I uh, had hypoglycemia, and then I had hyperglycemia, and then my thyroid was acting up. The doctor didn't know what to do with me, and she kept saying, you have to stop. I kept telling her I was trying to stop. I mean, there's no question in my mind that I was trying to stop, but it wasn't happening. You know... I want to go back to just something, just so we go back to the mental obsession again. When I was young, and I and I would visit a friend's house after we had dinner, because as I said, there was no a sweets allowed in our house, and her fam, family would drink um, soda, after, you know, with dinner or after dinner. And I used to help her dry the dishes, and I, they would give me a glass of soda, and it was like her Hammer's cream soda. And when my mother found out after a while that I was doing this and drinking soda at someone else's house, she said, if you really want soda that badly, I'll order it myself. And when it arrived, I opened it up and had a glass, and it didn't do for me, you know, the what I, what it did for me at my friend's house. So I... I drank the whole bottle trying to get that feeling, but what I was missing was the um, family dynamics that were in my friend's house that weren't in my house. They were, um, they were laughing and they were, you know, whatever. My house wasn't like that. Mine was staid and stable and quiet and um, and kind of kind of morose as opposed to theirs, which was uh, fun-loving and upbeat. So to me, um, why I say that is that. I always expected food to change my mood, which, of course, it did. But I had to learn, and when I, uh, and I'm going to get into uh, my recovery now, is simply that, um, well, the doctor sent me to an obesity expert. He was doing a, um, she had heard of a doctor who was doing work with FenFen. And so I couldn't, since I couldn't seem to be able to stop eating, she decided to send me to him because he would give me the fen-fen, and maybe I could get stabilized. But he, when I went to him, she misunderstood. His, his study was about people over 200 pounds over their ideal weight. I was over 200 pounds, but not 200 pounds over my ideal weight. And he said to me, I'm afraid I can't put you in my study, he said, because all the women there and all the people there would want to be your size, you know, that that is the criteria is they have to be 200 pounds over their ideal weight before I can give you this drug. Well, I burst into tears. I said, there's no hope. I don't, I don't want to live. I don't know what to do. I cannot stop. And he took pity on me and took me on as a private patient. But he wouldn't give me the fen-fen because that belonged in the study, and he, there was no way to give me that drug legally. So he said, I'll, I'll give you 90 days. We'll have regular therapy sessions, and you will have to give up having sugar, which, which I did. I, I was able to do that. I gave up the sugar. It was hard, but I still had the other stuff. The carbohydrates could make up for the sugar if you use it right. And um, eventually I um, got a little clearer. But what happened next was that four of uh, my dear family and friends went, told, told me they were terminal. That would be my mother and my aunts, my godmother and my best friend. They all, in October of 1997, um, were told they were terminal. 
and I realized that I needed desperately to find recovery because uh, these people I truly cared about, I would not be able to be there for them in any shape, manner, or form. So I, I, uh, I prayed. You know, I turned to God and just prayed. I don't know what to do. Please help me. And lo and behold, I met a woman, and she told me about a fellowship she was going to that had a very specific food plan. When I heard the food plan, I thought, what, are they crazy? But I, I said to her, but I, I'm not well enough to go very far. Where is this group, that, and when does it meet? She said, well, actually, it meets right on your block, and it meets every Wednesday. And I said, would you take me? And, I, and she said, yes. And on Wednesday, we met there, and I was introduced to the fact that that I had an allergy of the body on a level I didn't know. There were substances I was still ingesting that I didn't realize had now become problematic. And with the help of the sponsor, and of course that program used the big book at the time, it doesn't any longer, I'm sorry to say, I, I proceeded on a food plan that actually helped me within a few days to rid myself of the craving. Not necessarily the mental obsession, but the craving. I had been every single person in this book book. I, I could tell you honestly, I, you could see me on page 36. I was the one who sat down and had something and thought, oh, well, if I have this, that won't hurt me. I was the one who uh, went out and deliberately to have a binge because I deserved it one way or another. Good things were happening. Bad things were happening. And then when it talks on 39 about absolutely unable to stop uh, drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, well, you could see from my story that that exactly happened. Um, and then it was the remorse about, you know, how it happened and what I was doing. And on page 41 where it talks about not only had I been off guard, but I made no fight whatever against the first drink. Well, I didn't make any fight against that first cookie, did I? I just ate it like I deserved it. I earned it. I was entitled to it, and it owned me. Um, so I'm back into the food plan. I'm craving free, but it turns out that all the time I had been abstinent the first time, I had not actually, although I worked the program, I would think superficially, I actually didn't understand it and own it in my heart the way I do today because step one is the only step I had to do perfectly. And what it says in step one is that I'm powerless over my disease and my life is unmanageable and that my life is unmanageable. And my life was unmanageable even in the first time of my abstinence in, in the early 80s. I I really think that we all come in, at least I did. I didn't come in on step one. I came in just like these people in the big book. I was in the gutter. I didn't know what to do. I The first time was more like a lark. The second time I was like dead serious. This was like, this is as serious as a heart, as a heart attack to me. To me, my life was in my hands and I needed to be abstinent in all its complete and utter honest truth, abstinent not only in my body, but in my mind. I had, to, I had to really burn into the consciousness, which it did eventually, that I am not like other people, that I do have a problem, mental and physical, and that I cannot ever safely ingest anything that would cause me to have these cravings. But more importantly, with the help of my program, my sponsor, and a higher power, I was able to have the obsession lifted. I can go anywhere and do anything today, and I do. And I don't, food does not call to me. I can cook, I can bake, I can have a party, I can give a party. A lot of my charity work is actually helping, like church um, dinners, parties, whatever. I, and I started doing that kind of for selfish motive because I noticed sometimes that a lot of these events do not have what I would call for myself abstinent food. And I got tired of going and doing help and not having the ability to eat anything. So I have <laughs> offered my services and made sure that at every function that I'm a part of, they have abstinent food. They have grilled vegetables. They have steamed vegetables. They have healthy grains. They have 
deans cooked without things in it that I can't eat. Um, and I think I'm doing a service to humanity because nobody has ever said anything I've ever served has been uh, not delicious because I'm an excellent cook and I do know good quality. Having, uh, you know, having this disease has pro- practically made me an expert. I do the same thing in my building. For 14 years, I, I arranged all the parties we gave. Uh, I live in a co-op, and we give parties for different reasons. Uh, someone's retiring. Um, someone, you know, they, I'm talking about staff. And, uh, of course, the annual Christmas party, which we haven't done for a couple of years because of the economy. And this year we did a big toy drive instead for um, Sandy victims and children who need to- who uh, were without toys. And that was very rewarding. But I, um, I can I travel quite a lot today. I we 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 cruise quite a bit. All the cruise lines know my food plan. They know my proportions. I don't weigh and measure when I'm out. But the places I frequent on a regular basis uh, know what I need and and cater to it. Uh, when we're in Maine for the summer, we only frequent two restaurants, and both the, both their chefs, their maitre d, and their waitstaff know exactly what I. Require I can even call in advance because it takes a little longer to cook my meal because it's different than everybody else's and not coming out of that pot. Um, and they, I call in advance and they have it ready for me when I get there. And I do the same thing on a ship. I just tell them what I want they, and they make it for me. They, they usually do it. They, I can usually order it a day in advance if I want or that morning, and they will uh, have it ready for me for dinner. And they're very, very accommodating. We, we travel on the same lines on a regular basis, and they know us and know what, my, you know, what I require, and they, they give it to me. One of the things uh, I've learned is to ask for my, what my needs are and to expect that they're met, and, uh, and they are. Um, it taught me to take care of myself in many different ways other than just taking care of myself mentally. I also had to feed myself spiritually. I had to, I had, what I had not done originally when I was in abstinence uh, was to trust my higher powers completely as I should and have learned to do now. The uh, component of having a God in my life today is, is you know, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I have a, a wonderful intimate relationship with my higher power. I celebrate it on a regular basis. I give thanks every day. When I sit down to eat, I was taught one of the most important things they taught me was to, uh, since I am hypoglycemic, I do have to eat first thing in the morning. I say my prayers, and then I eat. And uh, with each meal, I give thanks. I don't take my, my recovery for granted. I am so very grateful that have I have no... Uh, I don't canvass the aisles uh, looking for foods that I don't need or want. I don't envy anybody else's food. If they can have it, that's wonderful. I hope they enjoy it and and celebrate their ability to have it without envy, as I did in the past. This is a freedom from the mental obsession. I I don't think that at some point in my life I will be able to eat like other people because I've accepted truly and irrevocably that I have a body and mind that is different than anybody else's, which is what the big book tries to tell us. That's why I say, when I look in the big book, you know, like that nice guy who's the Jay Walker who runs around doing the same old thing, well, that's what I did. I did that for most of my life. I did the same thing. I would actually go on a diet, and I was very good about going on a diet. I would go on a diet, lose the weight, and it was very, for a long time, I would only go up and down about 10 pounds. So I didn't see that this was a real problem because I could always take it off. It was later on, as it's a progressive disease, that it got harder and harder. It isn't because we're older, at least in my case. It wasn't that I was older and couldn't lose the weight. It was because it was, uh, it was my disease was getting stronger and stronger. And my ability to cope with it was getting less and less. But I used to diet down five pounds. This is the insanity of my thinking. I would diet five pounds less than my goal weight so I could binge my way up to my, weight, to my real weight. I actually had clothes. A size, I had a whole wardrobe of clothes a size eight in the 80s that I actually only got to wear for one week 
because at the end of the week, I was no longer a size 8. After spending months on a diet, whatever diet it might have been, I tried uh, eating every other day. I um, I tried, um, uh, well, as they said, I, my favorite one was the... Um, was the Atkins diet? I never went to Weight Watchers, and uh, and I knew that Weight Watchers wouldn't work for me because they, in those days they let you eat celery and and uh, carrot sticks free all day long. Well, I probably would have eaten about seven or eight pounds of those darn things, and I don't care how little calorie they had, calorically they had, I would still have been eating them all day long. I I I am so grateful to be free of that type of obsession. Uh, and and to feel that I can be of use to other people. Now, when my when I I uh, as I said when I was with that doctor, I'm sorry to jump around like this, but when I was with the doctor who was uh, not giving me the fen fen, which I'm eternally grateful that I never got it. Uh, he also had to deal with me. As I said, I was seeing him on a regular basis, and he and I worked through years and years and years of layers of grief and anger that I had never really expressed. Also, the fear of having a, um, a, a well, a well-built body, so to speak, because when my weight was uh, the regular weight or normal weight, I had a figure that was exactly like Raquel Welch's. We had the exact same height and the exact same measurements, and it caused a lot of attention, and I wasn't used to it. I had never dated, remember, all those years, and male attention scared the heck out of me. So being overweight was a, a way of hiding. Um, it also repressed a lot of rage and anger that I had had built up, all of which was dealt with in therapy. And um, the doctor was very, very uh, excited about the food plan and the program of recovery that's outlined in the big book. And he actually um, uh, did go to several of the hospitals that uh, do food-related disease issues in the city. But their real primary thing is to, in those days was to put you on – um, something like a medifast kind of thing where they, you know, like a thousand calorie drink a day or something like that. And they really didn't want to know. And there was a man years ago named Charles Starks who actually worked and was the head of a rehab who had uh, noticed the correlation between people who um, who ate um uh, compulsively and the recidivity in alcoholism and especially the sugar connection. And he devised a food plan that was devo- devoid of sugar for any addict. And it helped enormously. And he went around to rehabs and he told them that, you know, this might be a connection, the sugar connection with this, uh, with these other needs, uh, other addictions. And they just said, well, that all may be true, but no one is going to do it. And, um, and nobody ever has, and that was 30 years ago. So I've done a lot of research lately, I mean, not lately, in the last 15 years, uh, about these kinds of things. I, My abstinence dates April 7th, 1998. Um, I was able to be there for my family, I'm proud to say. I, um, I was the embarrassment in my family uh, physically because nobody, because of the diabetes, everybody was very weight conscious in my family. And um, they all were on the, you know, normal side. I, I don't know of any of them that had a real weight issue. I was the only one with a weight issue. I, at one time, I have a photograph. I keep it because it reminds me of my disease. Is I was bigger than my cousin, and my cousin's a male and um, a big, hefty male, and and I was bigger than he was. So I, uh, you know, I keep that as a reminder of that's my disease. You know, and I really have come to love that person, even in her uh, bigger body, because that that was me. But I was I was ill, and now I'm better, and that's really what it's all about. But they used to think I was just weak-willed and piggish, and watched everything I ate. And I was the, I was not invited to a great number of things. I, I was not in bridal parties because they didn't want the wedding photograph to look bad because I would be overweight. 
um, I didn't go to the prom because I couldn't fit into that kind of a dress, and I didn't want to go in some old lady kind of outfit. So these are very painful things. This is what the disease robbed in me. But I didn't buy the disease. Uh, the, the disease I believe I've always had it. I think it just was something that's in my body, and 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 that's it. But it can be. Um, you can recover. I don't say I'll recover from ever having uh, the craving removed if I ingest something, but I do and have had the experience of having the obsession removed. That my body, my body doesn't get a chance to have the craving because my mind no longer wants to go there, and that to me is freedom on a level that I would never have ever dreamed I could have. I've been the same size for years and years on end now. And um, and the other thing I have to say is they told me if I weighed and measure my food, I never, ever have to weigh and measure myself. And indeed, for the first year, I never did. I didn't, didn't want, I only had the doctor weigh me. I never weighed myself because I can't be a slave to a scale, I can't, and I can't be, have it as my mood changer. I can't make a scale determine whether or not I'm okay or not okay or a good person or bad person. Uh, it that just doesn't work that way for me anymore. I weigh and measure my food and trust in my higher power. I am the weight I'm supposed to be. When I was first in recovery, I the average weight I lost was only a pound a week, which is very slow, but that's good. And I've also not ever gone back to compulsively exercising because uh, that's not that's not a good thing for me. That's just as obsessive about uh, uh, as the food was, and I try not to. Um, to do anything that makes me feel that I have to have this or I won't survive that. That that, that doesn't work for me today. I still, you know, maintain pretty much the same food plan. I don't make changes in it without consulting my sponsor. I have a background in nutrition, so I pretty well know what I need to do and not do, but I don't do it. I don't doctor myself. I rely on a sponsor. She has absolutely no... um, background in nutrition, but she's my sponsor, and she does know about the problem of food and uh, compulsive eating, and so I trust her, and I have no reason, uh, you know, in all these years not to. I had a thyroid issue at one stage, and I was putting on weight. I wanted to eat less food, and she said, absolutely not. This is what your food plan is, and this is what you're going to be eating, and if you'll gain weight, that's that's too bad. And uh, I wasn't overeating. I was just gaining some weight. Eventually, I did go on, on thyroid medicine. I was trying not to go on thyroid medicine and, and doing it with iodine tablets, but eventually it didn't work. And I did need to go on thyroid about a year and a half, two years ago. And um, and little by little, the weight did come off. and uh, And it was only a matter of a few pounds. But I wasn't comfortable in my clothes. The truth of the matter is, though, it didn't make me feel bad, and it didn't make me want to eat anything. It just was a fact of life. I'm getting older, and things go differently. I'm also an inch shorter than when I started. Fifteen years ago, I was five foot seven. Today, I'm only five foot six. And so, some of that weight went right to my waist. I used to have a real tiny little waist. Uh, not that it isn't small now, but it isn't the way it was. And um, and uh, I've had to accept that, too. My body shape it is not going to be the same at 67 as it was at 25. It's just not going to happen. And, uh, and those are the things I had to accept along the way. I would have liked to have it stay the way it was, but that's not the way it is. And, and, uh, and that's okay. Uh, everything is okay today. I have a higher power that's in control of everything. I don't try to manage the world anymore. I just uh, do the next right thing and trust in my higher power, and it's worked a day at a time for me. I'm a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, undereater, exercise bulimic and bulimic. I, I mean, I, and I think also I call myself also a food addict in that I have allergies to very specific substances. I uh, do not. Um, I am not a unilateral. Uh, eater of every single thing in the world. I, I would pass up tons and tons and tons of broccoli to go out and get something that was sweet. It would 
never occur to me to eat the broccoli. Broccoli would not do it for me. But uh, today, as I said, um, my life is completely full and and a very uh, it has its moments. It's uh, I, I've had to deal with lots of loss. Uh, all those four people that I came in because they were dying died within six months. I stayed abstinent. My aunt, who never invited me to her um, yacht club or her her uh, tennis club, she didn't invite me because she was in fashion. She was very well known in the fashion industry, and she was ashamed. She used to say, "I can't have you there. How would it look?" And then before she died, she made amends to me and said, "She would." I was already on the food plan, of course, but I wasn't by the time she died, which was only a few months after I had been into recovery. I wasn't anywhere near the. Um, goal weight that I eventually got to, uh, and I actually didn't have a goal weight. I just let God decide when. It, my, my food plan has never changed. It's exactly the same as it was the day I walked in here. Um, she said, nurse, nurse, bring my niece a slice of bread. She thinks she can't eat bread, but it's the staff of life, and I'm worried about her. Isn't she beautiful? And I thought that was very sweet. <laughs> and then two days later, she was dead. But that was a very um, loving exchange, if you understood the relationship for all those years. And to have her um, want me by her side, you know, at the end there was really very touching. So, oh, and what I wanted to say, one of the things about us is we looked exactly alike. Uh, my mother was quite short, and I was very tall, and my aunt was very tall. She had been a model, and then she became a fashion designer. And we actually look exactly alike. And even till today, if I attend an event, you know, with my cousins, they'll say, oh, my God, she looks just like Aunt so-and-so. And it's, um, you know, it's bittersweet to have lost so many people. Um, but that's what happens when you're of a certain age. But I have not seen any occasion where I had to pick up anything. Not a wedding, not a baptism, not a bat mitzvah, not a, bat, uh, a bar mitzvah. I, I, there, is, there is no occasion. There's nothing anybody makes that's so special that I have to taste it. None of these things that used to be my mental obsession ways of getting around my addiction, no, they, they don't have any, any weight anymore because I accept and know where I'm coming from and where I need to be. And I, I just am so grateful that I have had the opportunity to be in recovery in this program. And I really, I really appreciate your willingness to listen to my very long, long, convoluted, circuitous, rooted story. So I pass right now and bless you all. Thank you. Thank you, Gloria very much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning, highlighting the allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Now we open the floor to any questions or comments anyone might have on the topic. Press star 1 to unmute. Patricia, may I ask a question? Of course, Patricia, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to know what, what she meant when she said that um, even though she didn't have sugar, that she could use carbs um, the same way. Did, did I, I did, maybe I didn't maybe I didn't hear it right? But, well, the, I'll tell you what the doctor told me. Thank you for the question. The doctor said to me, you could give up sugar all you want, but if you continue to overeat carbs, they turn into the same amount of sugar to be, because they break down in the body. Everything breaks down to the body of sugar. So if I overate on carbs, what I was actually doing was manufacturing sugar in my own body. So that's why I always, he said, needed to weigh and measure Okay, now, can I ask what kind of carbs? I mean, because there's carbs in, in fruit, there's carbs no, in... No, no. Well, he was, we were referring to carbs. Like, if I'll give you the exact conversation. Um, I said to him, there was somebody in the program who, although they did give up sugar, was still eating um, three bowls of oatmeal 
and he said three bowls of oatmeal. Well, three bowls of oatmeal is the same amount you put it just plain oatmeal. Three three bowls of oatmeal would give you, when you break it down, the same amount of sugar as if you had a candy bar. So that was okay, his that- admonishment about I must weigh and measure. And to think I could just free flow, not you know, not eating certain things and and get away with eating abstinent food because oatmeal is an abstinent food. Right. Oh, I I'm confused because I have I have um, carbs in my food plan which I just put in there, okay? Because I was only eating I was only eating my my fruit and meat and then my vegetables and meat and I had like that one um, serving of brand cereal during mm-hmm. the day and um, I was told that's not enough carbs so that's no, why I'm confused well no no that's why we weigh and measure because a portion of carbs is fine one bowl of oatmeal would be fine one cup of oatmeal is what I do if I'm doing oatmeal but if I had three cups of oatmeal for breakfast, because it's it's an abs it's allegedly an abstinent food, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's no wheat flour sugar in oatmeal. But if I ate three bowls of oatmeal, I might as well have had the sugar. So it's not that you shouldn't have the carbs; it's a question of the proportion of the carbs to the rest of your diet. Thank you, okay, Patricia, sure. and thank you, Gloria. I think it's important to interject at this point that. Uh, although the alcoholic who crawls in his way into the AA room, you know, is allergic to alcohol. With compulsive overeaters, it is more complicated. We are not all uh, triggered by the same substances no. and the same eating That's behaviors. True. So uh, this is this is a matter that should be discussed with one sponsor in terms of the specifics, in terms of what substances are triggers for each individual. So thank you for the question, Patricia. Further discussion, I believe, is warranted with your sponsor. Thank you, Gloria. Any other questions regarding allergy of the body, obsession of the mind? Hi, this is Melanie. Hi, I Just really quickly, I was um, wanting to thank you, Gloria, for the talking that you did and, and was asking if you would be willing to leave your telephone number. Oh, sure. My number is 212, I'm on the list, but it's 212-473-2150. Thank you. And it's a safe line. You can call any time. Thank you. Yes, may I ask a question to Gloria? Yes, please do. This is Alita in Minnesota, and my question is, is with the holidays being near, I was just wondering if you had any suggestions on, um, I have some problems sometimes with being obsessed with what other people, how they feel about me, if I weigh and measure, and if I don't eat what they offer me. Um, I do it, but I do suffer from guilt afterwards. And I'm just wondering how you dealt with that, like, in the beginning so far. To me, other people's food is is really none of my business. It's actually about learning that other people, what other people do uh, is none of my business. And it's up to me to take care of myself. And I know people have said, oh, they'll be terribly hurt if I don't eat what they've baked. And I... And and I wonder, you know, and I and I say, well, I have an allergy to that. I'm afraid, and um, I make it very clear that I have an allergy to people. Uh, I've been hospitalized, and hospitals acknowledge my allergy. And I don't eat when I'm in a hospital. I don't eat hospital food. They cook exactly what I need. And uh, the di- the dietitians have never given me a hard time. And I've had uh, very minor inst- uh, hospitalizations, but 
you know, I, I have to have certain, you know, certain things and I can't eat other things. And would people actually do, if you had a peanut allergy, would they offer you peanut brittle? I mean, just because they spent all day making it. I mean, they either respect your needs or they don't. And if they don't respect my needs, I don't stay around people who don't respect my needs. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Mary. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater near Philadelphia. Can you hear me? Yes, Mary. Thank you so much. I've been listening uh, for a number of months, and I hear wisdom here that I've never heard before. Um, I um, am on a plan following Devoid of Sugar Flower Week, but when you were talking about all the metafests and things like that, and what I I agree with the big book of it, uh, that the psychic change and the greater part of the obsession is in the mind uh, because uh, I don't know if you agree with this about and see if I'm on the right track. When I began at 14, these bizarre behaviors, which I heard some of them in your talk today, uh, the uh, incredible, uh, I call it the, the dance, the Russian roulette with the calories and the the, uh, the binging and then the purging and then all the exercise uh, I felt that that was the beginning of my mental torment, the continual mental struggle uh, that just completely took over. It was not only the obsession of the foods themselves, but the behaviors themselves took over. And the greater part of my recovery involved the uh, uh, obliteration and the letting go of those behaviors as well as the... uh, be eating the no sugar flour and wheat, which I do on my way and measure everything. Um, what is your take on that? Because I, I, I do agree with um, the, the physical allergy manifested itself when I was growing up. And a kid doesn't really have, I don't believe I had a mental obsession as a child like that up until age maybe 12 or 13. But when those behaviors kicked in, that's when my mind became... Uh, it was given over, um, and I just wanted to hear what you had to say about that. And also, there's the element of my spiritual condition that I I have to stay off of sugar, flour, and wheat, but there's this supernatural willingness that I believe that God gave me. That I, I There's this supernatural element of the... Uh, the Almighty that that helps me to be willing to do this because I still obsess about my meals a lot of times, and that's where I uh, think that my recovery. When I people say recovered, I said, "Oh my gosh, I can't wait for lunch." And I recovered, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. So anyway, your take on the, those behaviors in terms of mental obsession and um, how does God figure in for you? I just uh, they they were basically my issues today. I'm, I got to mute because there's dogs barking here. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, as far as that, my uh, relationship with the higher power, I I maintained from. I had always felt that I had some big spiritual hole. I didn't know it was a spiritual hole. I thought it, it just was an emptiness that I've always felt since I was a kid. And that somehow I, I, the, my mental obsession took the notion that food or some food substances, sweets, whatever, would fill fill up that that emptiness, that sadness, that loneliness, whatever it was. But I found that that emptiness was exactly God shaped. And when God came, when I allowed God into my life, or when I acknowledged He was in my life, because I do believe He was always in my life, I just didn't know. Uh, I didn't know it, and I and I was the one who needed to open up my heart and let that amazing uh, feeling of safety and security fill me. And that, to me, is the um, higher power as I understand Him. And I, I I haven't been empty or lonely or sad. Well, I have been sad, but you know what I mean. I haven't had that that longing, that that uh, that that hollow feeling. That I'm not enough, and I and I need something. I need more. Need more of everything. I, I actually, you know, think that my disease takes me into the realm of wanting more of everything. And today, to feel content, satisfied, and enough—that uh, is a gift from my higher power. That's the grace of the program, as far as I can tell. Um, 
as far as you know when and how the obsession starts and the craving you know whatever i, I don't know i i know for me that there was certainly telltale evidence that there were allergies and uh, mental obsessions or cravings from a very early age um, and certainly insane behaviors. And, of course, I don't have those behaviors today. I think they went away as uh, as I worked the program. And uh, for me, uh, abstinence is not uh, – is not. Uh, I wouldn't say abstinence. I say freedom from not eating certain substances is not, for me, what recovery is about. Recovery is the whole nine yards. It's the program of recovery. It's all of the steps. It's it's working with others. It's allowing the grace of God in your life. It it's a whole it's a whole ball of wax actually. And so I don't think there's yeah for me all the components have to be there. It's like my meal. I eat all of my meal at one time. I don't eat a protein here and an hour later eat a fruit and an hour eat a later eat a, a a vegetable and no I eat the whole thing and that's what the program is. It's the whole thing. It's not one or the other or half of because as it says uh, half measures avail us nothing. So I wish everybody a recovered future and a recovered present actually thank you gloria and for hi the gloria this is Teresa. i have a question okay hi um i have a question about what you said about um weighing and measuring your food and that you don't weigh and measure when you are out but that you call ahead have there ever been cases where you were not able to, you know, speak to someone at a restaurant or they weren't accommodating and you had to um, wing it? And if you did that, um, how did you make it through the experience? Well, I, I have uh, had the experience of having to wing it, but I have to say, by and large, I don't normally put myself in a position where that happens. I uh, there, uh, I do always call ahead. Uh, when I got abstinent um, in in the um, in '98, uh, I belonged to. I had a, a four of us. There were four ladies, two of which are gone now, but there uh, were four of us. Once a month, we used to find dine. We live in New York, and we used to find this quite a kick. We'd go to lunch because it's cheaper, but we would uh, hire a limo to take us to a fancy restaurant, Le Cirque or Oriel or Boulay, whatever one of whatever was in vogue at the moment, and we'd go there for lunch. And uh, this was our treat once a month. We did this, and we always said we we went there by limo. We came home by train because we had no more money left. They got them all home, <laughs> but it was great fun. Even then, I used to, I said to them when I went on the food plan, I I won't be able to join you anymore and they said the hell you won't and that's I had a very good support system we called any one of those very fancy restaurants and told them exactly what I needed and they provided it with us and I even told them I'd pay them extra you know because I needed maybe more vegetables than they would serve me normally or a bigger salad and they always accommodated me and nobody ever charged me extra for it either have I ever had to want, uh, to just wing it yes I have and uh, you know, one of the reasons I weigh and measure also is because I have a brain. It, remember, it is a mental disorder, and I'm glad you asked the question. Because if I don't weigh and measure, I, I give an opportunity to my very warped brain to say, you know, you didn't have enough or I had too much. So I'll feel guilty or I'll feel deprived. I can't afford to do that. That's why I weigh and measure. It it ends, this, there's no dialogue in my head anymore. So I really do. I find it a tool. If you come to my house for dinner, I'm going to weigh and measure your meal, too. I may weigh and measure anybody that walks in my house because I'm so used to it. I just do it automatically. It's not a hardship. It's the same thing as using a spoon to taste something. I, it just the scales right there, and I put stuff on it, and and I, uh, you know, eliminate the little chatter in my head that might want to say you didn't have enough or you had too much, and. And, and it keeps that. And but if I have to do, um, if I have to wing it, uh, I'm pretty good at what it is. I actually can pick. If I go food shopping with somebody, I could actually pick a fruit the exact size I want. I know the difference between a six ounce apple and a twelve ounce apple, and I'm really good at that. But I do prefer to weigh and measure because I like it. I really feel it's secure. Thanks, Gloria. 
You're welcome. Thank you, Teresa. Anyone else? Questions? Well, my name is Miriam. A question to Gloria. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, Miriam. Go Hello? ahead. Thank you for question. Yes, yes. I'm Hello, Miriam, Miriam from Jerusalem. Oh, I well. wanted to ask you, how long are you in this uh, wonderful uh, life? Well, it'll be almost 15 years. It'll be 15 years 15 in April. Years. Wow, wow. Because I am very new in recovery. I'm recovered. I finished the steps. I walked them. I'm young in that. And sometimes it came to my head that will that good feeling be forever? I, I Sometimes I think, how long will it take? And what can I do to make sure that it will last for more and more? So I asked you the question because I wanted to know 15 years is wonderful. The same level of happiness, the same level of um, balance, the same level. I, I just thank you. <laughs> and if you have something to tell me, if you had this feeling and thought at the beginning also. Well, if 15 years accumulated, uh, uh, to me it's only a day at a time. I wake up every morning, I say good morning to God, I tell him, uh, this, uh, this is me, it's Gloria in New York, and uh, I, you know, when I ask him to help me today, I only live a day at a time. I tell people to stop worrying about tomorrow. You can't change the past, and you can't, you really don't know what the future holds. Just live in the moment. The days accumulate as they go along. They take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. I didn't set out to be mm -hmm. abstinent for 15 years. I just said I'd like to get abstinent through one meal. I, uh, people say mm -hmm. to me, how do you start? I say, well, I start with breakfast. I start with breakfast, four hours later I have lunch, five hours later I have dinner, and four hours later I have a snack. I, and, and, you know, if there is ever a thought in my head that I'm hungry, I, you know, it doesn't happen because how, how could I be hungry? I just ate. I mean, I've, I've been eating all day long, regular nutritious meals. So I just, all that, all that stuff that used to be in my head uh, has been eliminated by just following uh, a plan of action that works for me. Everybody has mm -hmm. their own plan. Some people eat three meals. Some people do whatever. Some people eat ten meals. I mean, whatever works. The point is I don't have to do it forever, ever. I just have to do it now. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Stay in the mm -hmm. moment, and you're mm -hmm. always going to be safe. Mm -hmm. And days do accumulate. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Thank you, Miriam. Anyone else this morning? Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. Any questions? Once, twice. Good morning. My name is Rita. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I uh, have been in OA uh, since 1990, and I, but I feel like an absolute newcomer. This is perhaps my uh, seventh or eighth meeting. Um, sweeteners. I have uh, thought I'd done so much research, and uh, I'm using a very pure form of uh, stevia uh, that I got at a health food store. And I became self-indignant uh, and I was run riot with uh, someone I spoke to yesterday that is recovered and I owe her a great amends. And if she's listening, I uh, I just was fighting because I wanted my way. Uh, Gloria, um, thank you so much. Uh, I related uh, to a lot. I believe I too was uh, born and chased Chase sugar uh, from my ancestors as a child. Um, give me your opinion. Uh, that there isn't a lot in the doctor's opinion about sweeteners, but I would like a recovered compulsive overeater uh, to share their opinion with me on the powdered pure uh, form of stevia. I I don't do any. I, I mean, I did in the early in, in the eighties when I first came in. I did do sweeteners. Uh, I in my uh, recovery in the last uh, 
almost 15 years, I, I, I did eliminate all sweeteners. I, I don't really need any sweeteners. If I want to sweeten something like oatmeal, I use cinnamon. And, uh, uh, you know, I find after years of, uh, well, even for a very brief time of abstinence from my binge foods, I find everything sweet. I find everything sweet. There's nothing that I eat that I I really require a sweetener in. Um, I like my yogurt the way it is. I, uh, I I I do like the tartness of it. It doesn't bother me in the least. So, and if I if I want to do anything to it, I put as I said uh, nutmeg and cinnamon in it. And so, and that's how I do it. I I I don't do I don't do coffee or any caffeine. And um, I, I haven't done caffeine actually since uh, 1980 because when I came into OA originally, they made me. Well, their suggestion was that I don't do coffee, cigarettes, or sugar, actually, at the time. And so I gave up all those three things. Oh, it's cigarettes. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink coffee. And uh, and that was it. It was all those little oral gratifications. Some people can do it, and it doesn't bother them. There's a whole host of, you know, and I do believe that everybody's body is different completely and that one does have to have the uh, expert opinion. And by expert opinion, I don't mean just somebody saying, well, this is what I think. I mean somebody who actually does your blood work and looks and you know looks over your um, medical um, uh, blood work and sees exactly how you're utilizing food and uh, nutrition and helping you with uh, what's best for you. And I do believe it's as individual as your fingerprints what you can and cannot do and what you should and shouldn't do. So I don't really know that anybody just off the hand, I could tell you what I do, but I can't tell you what you should do. That's the, that's the difference. I can only say for me, I, I don't use any um, flavorings like that at all. I understand. I don't even I really, want any. Thank, thank you. you so much. I uh, have a doctor who <laughs> loses weight with the Atkins diet and just doesn't uh, get the sugar addiction. So, But thank you so much. Well, the Atkins diet does not have wheat flour sugar in it. If you look at the Atkins diet, that's uh, basically what it's eliminated, mm, which why okay, it was good. so very popular at one time and why it was so effective for me for so many years. And actually, I live in New York, so I did get to uh, um, meet Dr. Atkins. And uh, not that we discussed his food plan, but Thank you a friend so of mine was his heart patient. He was Thank an excellent heart doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And on that note, just a reminder to everyone, uh, please seek the guidance of your recovered sponsor, doctor, dietitian, nutritionist, for further guidance regarding the identification, the analysis of, of your binge food. That is, that is an individual matter here on this line, and so uh, I leave you with that disclaimer. And thank you, everyone who attended this morning. Of course, Gloria, thank you for your time and your energy speaking about allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, as it relates to your personal experience. We thank you for your service this morning. And I'll close the meeting as we close our meetings here on A Vision for You from the Big Book, page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.